I can remember having conversations around the dinner table around respect and talking about if someone had a disability, how it's important to be kind as opposed to non-inclusive and that dialogue that my parents, neither who are college educated, they instill that value of respect. Tim Ryan grew up in a working class family in Boston where his early jobs included a paper route and a job at a grocery store. He's now the U.S. chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers, the global accounting firm known as one of the big four auditors. In 2016, it was ranked as the fifth largest private employer in America. Now, whether it's the changing political landscape, the headlines companies face over protecting data, or getting the right envelopes at the Oscars, PwC handles issues large and small, and a lot of it crosses Ryan's desk. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but there are all kinds of ways. Mainly, I just want you to subscribe, and then the internet can do the delivery work for you. I sat down with Tim Ryan at PwC's office on Madison Avenue in Manhattan to talk about challenges and changes facing global business and his own rise from blue-collar roots to the top level of a company that touches many of the world's most powerful firms. Here's Tim Ryan. There's some things that change and some things that don't ever change. The things that will never change is we focus on our clients and serving them in the ways that help them achieve their mission, whether that be quality auditing, tax advice, or consulting advice. And the other thing that will never change is that we look after our people and we help them achieve their full potential. How we do that changes over time as the world changes. Today we are focused on helping our people become the very best they can be from three dimensions. The, the first dimension is helping them raise their what we call their digital IQ. So what we hear from many workers around the country, including ours, is they're worried about staying relevant as the world moves very, very, very fast. And so we're investing in heavily digital upskilling because that will make them more relevant at their clients. And oh, by the way, over time as they leave the firm, it will also make them very valuable. That's one element. Mm -hmm. The next element is what we call be well, work well. The world is a hard place and helping investing in their physical and mental well-being, not just at work, but dealing with life's challenges and curveballs, we're investing heavily in their physical and mental well-being. The last element is what we call skills to society. And as we see more convergence around business and society, around the biggest issues out there, whether it be diversity and inclusion, education, infrastructure, climate, we're helping our, get our people more exposure to those issues. That broad overview is what we call your tomorrow, and that's how we're changing PwC. Also, we can take care of our people and serve our clients better. Hmm. You uh, recently got back from Silicon Valley, San Francisco. You're yes. going to head back out there. What's different about serving those businesses that are driving so much growth and change in this economy? So it's funny, th there are differences. There, there's actually similarities too, right? So the, the similarities are they're equally focused on their customers, no different than East Coast, Midwest, or European countries, companies. They're equally focused on finding ways to return an appropriate amount to their investors, and they're equally focused on creating a good workplace. What's different is the comfort with change, just the, the mentality of, fast, fail quick, try new things, and oftentimes proximity to customer. Like, mm. What's the customer saying, move quicker? But if I were to put one thing on it, it would be the comfort would change, which we all hear often, pace of change, pace of change. I would say a little bit more comfort level out there with world's changing, let's move fast. Tell me about 
data and how it comes into play. Right now there's lots of concerns about how various companies handle right. uh, sensitive information about people. And, right. and often I think when, when companies are trying to figure out their risk and what to do about that, they come to folks like you to try to figure it out. Yeah, so I've often said and believe, not even when you look at the current environment, data is going to be one of the things that plays out over the rest of our lives like in terms of how data adds value and solves very very important problems that are out there and more data gives fact-based insights to how you solve problems data is inevitable as consumers do more and more of their business without con uh, conducting face-to-face -face. and data is also something that we hold very private near and dear and so over the rest of our, our working lives we're going to see data at the crux of, of it adds a lot of value can solve a lot of problems but also privacy rights ownership who gets the value etc we help a number of our clients sit down and think through those challenging problems or challenging opportunities how to use data more enable their businesses how to use data to help solve problems whether it be in healthcare or financial services or manufacturing but we also help our clients look at how do you protect that data mm. how do you govern that data what how you should think about transparency how quickly is that changing I, I because would, because uh, you know seven yeah, years ago or however yeah, long it was yeah. when, when Facebook first opened up Facebook, right. Facebook platform there weren't a lot of people going wait a minute right. You mean all these little apps are just going to get access to this data? Right. Where is it going to end up? How is it going to be audited? Yeah. So what I would say is it's changing fast, and then there's big spurts. And, and if you bear with me, I'll give you an analogy. If you look at how we believe our world moves, there's often people who are close to the challenge. So if I go back to the financial crisis, I look at Dodd-Frank. We got Dodd-Frank almost overnight because of a financial crisis, that there was intense public scrutiny, intense interest, because it affect, affected society as a whole. When I look at, but prior to Dodd-Frank, there were people who were looking at different ways to capitalize, different ways to make sure too big to fail didn't happen, different ways to make sure institutions were in the right businesses and maybe not other businesses. And there were years of spade work there. Mm. And it, at a time, seemed like it was moving fast, at times it was moving slow, but then you get an event and the event happens and it comes together quickly. I think the same thing happens with data. So there are a lot of people who are studying data, looking at code of conduct, ethics, protection, security, rights, et cetera, and that's been happening for years. When you have an event, something that affects broad society, I think that's when you'll get big movement from an oversight, governance, and regulation. Have we had it? I, I would say it's not clear right now when you look at where we are today. Certainly there's a lot of things in the news today, but I also point out a number of businesses are really trying to lean in and make sure they look at self-governance, they look at industry regulations, and I applaud that. And we work with companies to do that. The idea at the end of the day is try to self-govern yourself, but there is a place for regulation around data as well, and I think that'll play out over time. Mm. Um, the world is getting smaller in one sense, yeah. globalization, yeah. but it's also perhaps getting fractured as you have forces that are, some would say, moving in a more protectionist right. direction how closely do you look at those changing currents as you're advising clients on what their costs and risks might be as they try to conduct business around the world? John, you, you just hit on what we believe is actually one of the most interesting trends that will go forward. If we think about our lives and maybe our parents' lives, the concept was globalization worked from a corporate perspective. You'd take something, you'd, you'd develop a great product, a great service, and you'd scale it up across the globe. And you largely had one business model, a medical device in country A was the same as a medical device in country B, an automobile, a service that someone was providing. You're just finding the right distribution system to plug it into, the right partners, and go. You got it in the right markets, repeat. and right. you got the benefits of scale. Mm. When you look at what's happening around our globe, which we expect will continue for, again, probably for the rest of our lives, you've got protectionism taking place. 
So that puts a lot of pressure on the business models. It puts pressure on the ability to actually have the benefits of scale that go with the corporate model. That's maybe obvious. The thing that's less obvious, it also puts pressure on the workforce. Hmm. So you have somebody who may be under a multinational's umbrella, the brand of that company, but then at the same time, they're dealing with their local nationalism. And so as a, as a leader, how do you motivate a global workforce? It becomes increasingly challenging as you're trying to mobilize globally to serve the customer. But then you've got the protection creeping into the workplace as well, which is going to put pressure on globalization. And I tell many people, with all due respect to former CEOs, this is one of the reasons why being a current CEO is a heck of a lot challenging because of the pressure on global business models. So how do you? Communication, transparency, and make sure the company understands it's, it's important to communicate its values. And the, the sense of values and culture, what you stand for, is important more now than ever to communicate. So things, things that are what I would call political and social issues don't creep into the workplace, or at least they're understood and there's a place. So for example, one of our values is respect. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, we respect each other. Mm. And whether you have a point of view that's different than somebody else's, that's okay. But it, what's important is to carry respect. And that respect, that value, carries across our borders. And that's important to talk about that as often as you can. It, you, we can't stick our heads in the sand to the pressure on globalization and protectionism. We've, we've been talking big talk, yeah. thinking big thoughts about globalization. You started off in Boston mm -hmm. from uh, a family that was a Boston family, yeah. not white collar, working class. How'd you get here? Uh, sometimes I wonder that. <laughs> but um, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people, so I'm one of four children, uh, second oldest. M my childhood memories. That's are, a small family in Boston. That, that is a small family, especially if <laughs> Irish Catholic, it's small. I, I, I tell people I don't have any vivid childhood memory of doing homework. I sincerely don't. Hmm. What I have vivid childhood memories of is working hard. I can remember, clear as yesterday, the fact that we had one of the largest paper routes in our town. And my, brothers and my brother and sisters and I, we did that paper route every day, every weekend. And I can remember Friday, Friday evenings was spent rolling quarters around the table and then going to the bank on Saturday morning. And my parents taught us around working hard and they taught us about saving and the importance of discipline. I can remember having conversations around the dinner table around respect and talking about if someone had a disability, how it's important to be kind as opposed to non-inclusive and that dialogue that my parents, neither who are college educated, they instill that value of respect. And I certainly have vivid childhood memories of the importance of honesty. And my mother would often say, if you made a mistake, own up to it. And just admit that you made a mistake, don't get caught up in being proud, don't get caught up in being defensive, just admit you own a mistake. My parents taught us those values. I was very fortunate enough to get into Babson College. I certainly, I think I got in in a year where they needed more people. Um, <laughs> I was very fortunate to get in. I remember my first day at Babson, like, again, like it was yesterday, didn't do a campus visit, very different than it is today. Oh, wow. So yeah. you showed up cold. I showed up cold, even though it was 15 miles down the road, right? right? It didn't do your official campus visit. I get the most financial aid. It was that simple. My dad worked two jobs, sometimes three jobs. My mother worked as a cashier, and I worked almost full-time at the supermarket at the time, but it was a simple financial equation. That's where it was going to be the cheapest education. And I remember showing up that first day with my father, who worked for Boston Edison at the time, and we set, stood there, and I remember thinking, I don't fit in here. 
How could you tell? Uh, yes, uh, I saw cars I'd never seen before. <laughs> I, I saw uh, different people of ethnicity that I hadn't seen before, because even back then, Babson had a very heavy uh, Latin America presence. And, and I just felt out of place, primarily from a wealth perspective, that I could see what I was carrying, what I was wearing. And I remember wanting to hold my father. I didn't, I, but I remember that, that feeling of wanting to hold him, but I, I knew that he was there. And the first couple of weeks were hard, without a doubt, but eventually I found found people that I was comfortable with and found people that I fit in with. Who were they? Uh, people who were also worked at the supermarket. So ah, interesting okay. enough, I, I worked uh, for 10 years at a local supermarket, four in high school, four in college, and then I moonlighted my first two years. And I found a couple other kids from Babson who worked at the supermarket. That same supermarket? Same supermarket. Ah. And we would share car rides at six o'clock on Saturday morning. We would bike because it was relatively close. But my ecosystem became this intersection of Babson and the, and the supermarket. And in many respects, that's where I learned more of my important lessons at, at the supermarket. But, but ultimately, at, as I just to continue on Babson, I had a professor, his name was Richard Bruno. And he asked me to try public accounting. I remember saying to him, I don't want to work for the government. He's like, what do you mean? I said, public accounting. I had no idea what it was. I thought public is logical to assume, given no background in the, in the profession, right. try it. He said, no, it's, it's about people. It's about relationships. It's about teaming. And he said, just give it a try. If it wasn't for him, I would not be here today. He saw something in me around people and teaming and collaboration that went way beyond technical acumen, mm -hmm. and he asked me to give it a try. So I gave it a try. What did you learn about culture, affinity groups, uh, from that experience of feeling way out of place, just 15 miles from home, and, and kind of that, that, that class gap? Yeah. I, I, I learned maybe for the first time in my life what it was like to not fit in. Because where I grew up in, in the, this suburb called Dedham, we're all the same. Like we're all white, Irish Catholic, or Italian, same socioeconomic background. Did you totally fit in that? Was it a little bit of a goodwill hunting situation? Yeah. Like you're going away to Babson. Oh, no. It was, it was <laughs> I, I definitely fit in. I was like, people still try to figure out how I got into Babson today. It really was. Like it, it, so so when, you weren't solving math equations? Yeah, no, no, no. Oh, okay, um, okay. I, was, I was lucky to get in. But it was... What was interesting is I, I saw for the first time that there were people different than me and, it, and I was on the outside looking in. And, mm. and again, more from an economic standpoint. And, and that taught me, going back to my, my mother's lessons around respect. And except this time it wasn't me who necessarily needed to give the respect, it was to be respected. Mm. And that's for maybe for the first time, first time I understood it was a two-way street. Yeah. Respect goes both ways. Uh, you've talked about yeah. that experience working in the grocery store, yeah. multiple family members yeah. working uh, for that company. You mentioned your mom and honesty. Yeah. She kind of paid for being honest she did. about the operations of that company yeah. and, and uh, being straightforward about what was going on. She did. Um, so my mother passed two years ago. Mm. And um, she was a cashier and she worked in the bakery. And my brother still works there today. Most of my important lessons in my life came from the supermarket. My brother-in-law works there. So it's very deep-rooted in our family. So and I know where you shop. And, uh, yes, you do. And, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. But my mother had an experience at the supermarket where there was somebody from the bakery who was stealing. And this, this supermarket was a small family chain. They took care of us. They, to this day, they take great care of their employees. And somebody was stealing. And 
Others knew she was doing it. It almost became like a joke she was stealing. But my mother stood up and she reported her and in a way over time became ostracized just because she was the one who spoke up and ended up having to leave. Like just because it became so hard on her to show folk every day and have other people just be upset that she turned her in. But my mother's principles were not bending. Like she didn't bend for anybody, whether it be me or a coworker who wasn't following it. And it also it taught me not only around the importance of honesty, but but also even when it's hard. Mm -hmm. And when it's hard is when it's needed the most. And she did. She ended up leaving that supermarket and then, you know, finding another place to work because of just the day to day challenges of working with people who, you know, didn't like the fact that she stood up. What did it teach you about culture? Because I imagine um both in an organization yeah. like PwC yeah. and the ones that you advise, you want to create yeah. environments where people who are honest and, and stand up don't feel like they have to leave. Yeah. So when I look at my career, I saw a number of instances where I, I had to stand up in my career, similar to what my mother had to do. And I was fortunate at those points in my career to have the current, the leadership of the firm then to back me. And it's hard when you stand up to a client and say no or delivering bad news. Now most clients take it in stride, but occasionally a client might say, we don't like that answer, and they might challenge that answer up to a higher level. And I, was benef I benefited in a big way from my supervisors at the time backing me. My job today, John, is to back my people, right, around our, our values and our culture. And it taught me that as, as a leader, it is important to back your people when you're trusting them to make the right decisions and following our principles and our purpose. And one of my biggest responsibilities today is even in the face of challenging news to say, I got you back. Mm. And even if we lose a client, it's worth it at the end of the day. Just a quick story. I once was facing a very challenging situation and our then general counsel, who has, has also since passed, he said to me, Tim, he said, the beauty of being part of a $5 billion firm, at the time we were $5 billion, he said, if we lose any one client, it's not going to make or break us. Just do the right thing. Hmm. That advice to me, when I was faced with a hard decision, was immensely helpful. And now my job is to be the one to say, the beauty of being a $15 billion firm <laughs> is no one client's going to make or break us. We should do the right thing. A lot of firms, yeah. a lot of companies have yeah. trouble with that yeah. when it's an issue of embarrassment. Yeah. A year plus ago, yeah. You guys were in the unfortunate position at the yeah. Oscars mm -hmm. of somebody having the wrong envelope. Yeah. We all saw what happened on TV right. and kind of the, the makeup, you know, mm -hmm. this year. It's nice. And it seems from mm -hmm. our perspective, the viewer, to have blown over. How do you handle it internally? Because mm -hmm. there are uh, other workers at PwC who perhaps feel like they have egg on their faces in the situation. You've got valuable right. you know, employees who are directly involved in that who are yeah. wondering what's going to happen to them. Yeah. So first of all, when, when that happened, I was in the audience, in attendance. I was seven months into my role as senior partner, not anticipating that to happen. But when it happened, the whole value system just went right through my head. And we spent an hour trying to figure out what exactly happened. Didn't have all the facts, but it was clear we had made the mistake. And we stepped up and owned up to it. And within 90 minutes, we had a press release out saying, we sincerely apologize for taking away from people who had worked their lives, dreams to get in that position. And we owned that responsibility, took responsibility for it. 
I'm proud of that, but to be frank, I'd expect nothing less of us because that goes to our culture and our values. It's easy to have culture and values. It's another thing in the face of adversity to actually live them. And I'm proud of our firm because we stood up and said we owned it. And we also reached out in every way possible to the people who were affected and let them know it. And when you do that, you have to lead from the front and you have to sit there and own that issue at the very sense. And at the end of the day, the people at PwC report to me, it was our responsibility and we needed to own it. One of the first things that I did after we went out with the public statement is we went to our people. That's and what I was going to ask. I imagine went, you had just as many, people. if not more, questions internally. And we, and we said, look, this is, this is why we have values. This is why we talk about culture. When we make a mistake, we should run up to it. We shouldn't be defensive. We should learn from it. And we should keep our level of humility. And we're going to learn from this. We're going to make sure we focus on every way to make it better for the people affected. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. But we're going to learn from this mistake. And I'm a big believer in humility. At, at the end of the day, we're all going to make mistakes. Someone once taught me you're going to get knocked down many times. <laughs> it's not a question of how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get up. We made a mistake and we owned it. But you've got to talk about it. Even to this day, we talk about it. Right? Is there anything looking back um, that you would do differently? Not not even necessarily because you messed it up the way that you did it in that right. situation, you know, aside from the, the actual incident, but the right. way you communicated about it, either internally or externally or um, changes that you might have made, anything? You mean around the Oscar point? Yeah, just, just in, in, the, in the aftermath of that, either yeah. the way you communicated internally or things that you saw that worked well and you think in retro, oh, maybe we could have done more of that or, or less of this. Yeah, I, when, I, when I look at it, it took us 90 minutes I would have liked to even move faster. Now it was chaotic, as you can imagine, but right. just getting that press release out was really important because we knew the world was watching and to make sure we stepped up knowing it. 90 minutes was good. I would have liked to move faster from that perspective. And then it did affect a number of people who, who actually were the ones involved. And while they made the mistake, or one, you know, we had that mistake, at the end of the day, I would have put my arms around quicker mm. around those people. And it's not, it wasn't intentional, it's just I never imagined the scrutiny that that would get at the individual level because we succeed together and we fail together, right? And we had made the mistake at that point. We were talking earlier about um, the global economy yeah. and powers that uh, are seeking to protect uh, different segments of the right. global economy. Uh, some people call that protectionism that's yeah. rising up. You have one of the broadest views out there, the different economic forces at play that are giving different companies, different players uh, incentive. Is there a piece of this that perhaps we're largely missing when we look at the trends that are, that are driving these forces? What's this really about when we see companies saying, uh, countries saying, maybe we ought to pay more attention to what's closer to home versus view this global wave as being inevitable? So you mentioned goodwill hunting earlier. So let's just be very, very clear. I am the furthest thing away in terms of intelligence, <laughs> but, but I am, because of my upbringing, very pragmatic. And, and I try to be very objective and, and listen to what we're hearing. Mm -hmm. When you look at where we are as, as a global economy in, in, a, in a world, we are short fundamentally financial and natural resources. So said differently, we're short across the world money for roads, bridges, infrastructure, healthcare, aging population, defense, climate, it goes on and on. Don't have enough money. Mm. We also are short natural resources. We have two billion people on the planet who are water disadvantaged, who don't wake up, who wake up every day and don't know where the drink is gonna come from, a shower or clean the train. 
Now, that arguably has been present in the 1900s, 1800s, 1700s. In fact, it has, because I've gone back and studied it. Mm. What's different is we have full transparency. When you live in a world where there's a fundamental shortage of financial and natural resources, and you have full transparency, you're only bound to get to protectionism. Because if you are one of the people who are in power, you're, you're almost going to be forced to look after your own because there's full transparency around who has what and who doesn't. Mm. So when I step back, I, I believe, I've believed long ago we are heading for this type of world. And by the way, it's, it's not the first time in history it's happened, and I don't also view it as doom and gloom, but I do think you're likely to see more people feeling you've got to protect your own as opposed to you know, think first globally. How much of the transparency is because of technology? I think a big part of it is. I mean, technology is the ultimate, it, technology democratizes data, democratizes education, access to information, and a big part of it. If you, if you look at what my children know today about different parts of the world, what they know in terms of haves and have-nots, what they know about demographic data, income inequality, gender, race, aging population, that data in, in just 10 years ago, 20 years ago, was for the elite and the educated. So one way of looking yeah. at even yeah. uh, cultural events like the Me Too right. movement yeah. is that the very fact that there can be a hashtag Me Too and it's yeah. so frictionless for people to say, you know what, I also had that experience and right. I did and I did and I did. Right. That's when it's the transparency that yes. shows, oh, wait a minute, this yes. Harvey Weinstein guy, this wasn't just a one-time thing. Maybe that would have taken in the past years upon years and various choke points right. uh, where perhaps somebody who was doing something wrong could keep it hidden. But now because of technology, that's so much harder to do. Yes, and so we, we often, I often say, if you look at a leader today, whether it be a business leader or a political leader, with all due respect to people who did it 10, 20, 30 years ago, the job is infinitely harder. One of the reasons it's inf infinitely harder is the phenomenon of transparency and speed. In the old days, a CEO needed to worry about their customers, their employees, and their investors. Today, they still have to look after those three. They've got to look at society from every different angle. Hmm. And different elements of society have a different view. And a large, time, large part, that's formed by social media. And it's formed by transparency, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does require a different skill set in the corner office. It requires a skill set to identify a trend and know when to lean in. A skill set to know when you're, you're in, you need to sit, come out and lead in with a set of facts. A skill set to know when you let other people speak. But it is an awareness that is a very different skill set. Uh, in a transparent environment, light spreads faster. That can be good. Yeah. But it also seems like germs spread faster, yeah. right? Yeah. As, as we're seeing um, Facebook become aware, hey, this social platform that we built for seamless communication, open world. Right. Sometimes that means that foreign governments, and what's a foreign government, I guess, depends on where you live. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right? That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Uh, can have influence in areas where it was harder for them to have influence before. When you look at your mission, which you said involves protecting data, yep. as well as, as other things, how does that technologically driven environment where germs spread faster come into play? So. One of the things I learned a long time ago is you focus on what you can control and what you can't and don't focus on what you can't. The reality is the world is moving very fast from a technology perspective 
It's moving very fast from a transparency perspective. And whether we want like that or not, we can't control it. The world's going to continue to progress. And I happen to think it's net-net for the benefit. With any sense of progress, there's, there's um, things that you'd like to change. Do we need a new type of defense? I, I think what's important is we need a new type of mindset around leadership. Hmm. So if you look at the way our world has moved in the past, when you talk about defense or, or protectionism, it's a little bit been of when, when there's an event, you learn. But today, the stakes are too high. It, it causes companies to think more about what could go wrong, mm. not from a legal perspective, but a moral perspective, a society perspective, and then causes you to think about what would you do to prevent that. So said differently, you don't do just the right thing because of regulation. You do it because what your stakeholders expect of you, which may, may be different. And then it causes you to think about, okay, given what that expectation is, what defenses do you need in place? Is it a technology defense? Is it a policy defense? Is it, is it a part of the business you'll get into or not get into? And where does your culture come in? Last question. Um, tell me about your response from a leadership perspective to some of the racial tensions that arose in the country pretty much right after you came into the position that you have now. We, I don't feel like we saw the kind of uh, corporate conversation response yeah. training that PwC uh, did across the board. Why, why did you feel like that was important? So it, it's, um, it's interesting. I was elected senior partner and officially became senior partner on July 1st, 2016. My first week was we were coming off the heels of Louisiana and Minneapolis, and we woke up on that Friday morning to tragedies and shootings in Dallas. And my, I remember vividly getting our team on the phone and said, okay, like, something's not right here, and what do we do? Do we communicate with our employees? How are people feeling? What are you hearing? And ultimately made the decision not so courageous to send an email out to our people. And it was fairly nondescript that said we care. Uh, we don't quite know all the answers. We know some of you are hurting, and we're in this thing together. We'll figure it out. What transpired was there were over a thousand emails that came in that weekend, and it basically summarized was summarized in one email. And that one email said, "When I came to work that Friday morning, the silence was deafening." And for me, that was an aha moment. And the aha moment was, here we are as an organization for over a decade have invested in programs, training, evaluations, unconscious bias training, all of which was very good. But at its most foundational level, when we needed it the most, we couldn't talk to each other. And people were coming to work where they spend the bulk of their time outside of a family, and they couldn't talk. Hmm. And we were like, wow, like, what do you do with that? We spent about a week talking about it, and then we made the decision to, to set up a session on July 21st, so less than 15 days later, we made the decision to have our first ever day-long discussion on race, which candidly was a risky decision. Mm -hmm. Many felt it was too risky given how raw the topic was in the United States, but we made the decision to do it. Have and you seen any dividends reaped from that, I either would in terms of retention or? Well, uh, great question, without a doubt. So we learned more about each other on that day than we ever did. The dividends aren't necessarily what you expect. Is it better retention? Our retention's pretty good anyways, but I like to think that's for the broader culture and, and everything mm -hmm. we do, of which this is one piece. What we, the benefits we saw were empowerment to continue the dialogue after 
July 21st. The, the empowerment that it's okay to talk about uncomfortable issues, what it's like to be a black man, what it's like to be a white man, and when you're trying to drive diverse inclusion but worrying about your ability to progress. That to have those real discussions, we saw empowerment. The other big thing we thought, saw, which I'm not sure at the time I would have said was a benefit, their expectations of me increased. Hmm. Like our people said, okay, good, but not enough. Hmm. And, and that then drove us to do a lot of work, not only inside PwC, but outside of PwC. Those two benefits are not what I would anticipated when we were thinking about doing it, but they certainly came out of that dialogue. My thanks to Tim Ryan. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me one of your own. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. There you'll see a video from some of these interviews, and you can also say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and technology issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to the YouTube uh, page and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Twitter and search for John Fort and you'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, FortKnox.com, or LinkedIn. Love to connect with you on LinkedIn. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.